0: chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, the last book in your Old Testament. So, If you don't want to go all the way through your Old Testament to get to it, you can start in your New Testament in Matthew and turn back a page or two and you'll find the small book of Malachi. I often feel the tension as I just prayed in my worship that I can't ever bring enough to the Lord. And I think sometimes we. Opposite of that, I think we've brought something really great to the Lord. There was once a man who was a member of of the choir in his church, and uh, as it turned out, he just simply couldn't sing. But he thought that this gift of worship he was bringing was wonderful and that uh, everyone should be glad with his joyful noise. And the other members of the choir finally recognizing this man could not sing Started asking one another, is it true? You know, are you noticing this too? This really is not as good as he thinks it is, right? And so eventually, you know, a few of them would go to him off and on and say, you know, hey, what about Iwana? You know, they need some help. and uh, or, or how about kids' ministry during the church service? That needs some help too. And no, no, I, I'm in the choir. That's my thing. So eventually they went to the choir director and they're like, listen, we we can't keep doing this. This guy's got to go or we can't serve with him, and so the choir director said, fine, I'll go talk to him, went and talked to the guy, and tried to convince him that there was probably better ministry in the church for him to do, better ways for him to worship the Lord, and no, no, this is my thing, I, I, I sing, I love singing, and I, this is my offering to the Lord, and so the, the choir director beside himself went to the pastor and said, listen, either you deal with this or all the choirs is quitting, and he'll be the only one singing, and so the pastor went to the man and was talking to him, and trying to draw out, you know, you probably should find something else to do. And and the guy finally said, listen, I I feel like you're trying to get me to not sing in the choir. What's wrong? And and the pastor finally just got very direct. And he said, well, I mean, lots of people have just told me you really can't sing. And the man kind of paused for a minute and he looked at the pastor. He said, well, that's nothing. I've had 50 people tell me you can't preach and you're still doing it. Sometimes in our worship, we bring offerings that we think are better than they actually are. And indeed, that's true of the sermon you're about to hear. We come to a text that exposes the worthless nature of worship being led by priests in Malachi's day who were going through the motions of worship. And in the motions of worship, they grew weary. And frankly, God grew weary of their worship. And so God compels Malachi, gives him a word to speak to these priests. And even in the directness of this confrontation, God mercifully draws them out through questioning, as you'll see. Starting in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1, God says through his prophet, a son honors his father and a servant his master. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, and my name will be feared among the nations. It is not my design that I preach on worship on Super Bowl Sunday, just to be clear about that. This was God's schedule for our very hearts. Malachi starts his prophecy by addressing their core problem. We saw that last week. Their core problem was they doubted the love of God. They were unsure if God even cared about them anymore, because he wasn't keeping his promises. Right after he addresses that core problem, he shows you how every other issue he's going to address relate to that problem. They're unconvinced of the love of God for them, therefore they are waning in their worship of him. And that's what he does next. He addresses the problem of their worship, but he doesn't address the people. He addresses those who are to lead the people in this right and good. Worship, And this is the key group who are largely responsible for the core problem among God's people, the men who should have been standing in front of God's people and saying, God does love you, he's covenanted to love you, and therefore you should trust him and obey him. Instead, they also were waning in their love for God, unconvinced of his love for them. As you heard me read the text, just think about some of the pieces of the puzzle to to kind of put together and figure out what's going on here. The the priests were, as you know, set aside by God early on in the history of the nation of Israel during the time of Aaron and Moses. It was a a position of privileged service in the the community of God's people. They were to to oversee the corporate worship of God, and that, of course, included the, the daily sacrifices to be brought publicly displaying the greatness of God. The priests were... Ordained by God as mediators between Him and His holiness and the sinful, unholy people that were God's people. You know and remember, they were given strict requirements of what this was to look like, how they were to serve, what they were to wear, when they were to serve, what was to be accepted as an offering, what was to be rejected, when they could offer it, how they could offer it, what they were to do with the different parts of the animal as they offered it for the different sacrifices they offered. It was a very prescribed and precise prescription from the Lord for service and public worship. Namely, they were not to bring animals that had any noticeable flaw. They were not to bring animals that were lame or sick or physically marred in any way. On top of that, they were to wear specific clothes that also were not physically marred in any way. They were to evidence by how they looked that they were pure, and in one sense, perfect. And this is all a privileged position in God's kingdom work in the nation of Israel, and these men are chosen by God to do it. This is not something these men signed up for or tried out for to see if they could light a better fire than the next guy or or kill a goat in a better way than the next guy. No, this was prescribed to them through heredity. They were assigned this office and this task through their forefathers, Levi and Aaron. In other words, they were chosen by God very clearly for this very specific and unique role. And in this unique role, they were to function well in presenting God to his people and his people to God. But you remember, almost from the outset, there was trouble, right? after the the services of consecration in the book of Leviticus and Aaron and his sons are all consecrated and set aside to the work of of the sacrificial ministry as priests Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu rise up and and probably motivated by a love for the Lord and overwhelmed by all the the glory they see in the service in the temple and the coming of the Shekinah glory into the uh, on, on top of the ark of the covenant they're provoked to to grab strange fire and to to offer some kind of strange sacrifice before the Lord. And you remember, they then quickly became the burnt offerings. God brought fire from heaven and dealt with them quickly and judiciously and dramatically. God meant business. He meant what He said. He meant for them to follow every part of every command He had been given. You think with a start like that, that if you're going to serve as priest, you're going to kind of always have on your mind, don't be Nadab, Don't be Abihu. Whatever you do, don't do that. But you you know the rest of the history, right? You remember the sons of Eli? You remember how awful those men were? I, I won't even say in mixed company some of the things they did at the temple for their own wicked lusts. God sent a man of God to Eli, which is ironic because Eli was supposed to be the man of God for the nation of Israel as the high priest. God sent a man of God to talk to the man of God about what he was doing wrong. He says this in 1 Samuel 2, 27, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then? Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel? That was early on in the kingdom days. Later on in the kingdom days, God raises up Ezekiel the prophet to confront his erring, idolatrous people and to tell of a day when God would bring judgment. And as he does, he confronts the priests with much the same words. Listen to this from Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Ezra and Nehemiah, these are post-exile prophets. That's Ezra, pre-exile, telling about what was coming or during the exile. The nation of Israel taken out of their land and taken to Babylon and made prisoners because they were idolatrous. Seventy years later, they come back to the nation of Israel. They rebuild Jerusalem under the Ministry of of Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. And even then, listen to Ezra and Nehemiah as they say essentially what Malachi says Your priests are profaning my altar and despising my name. In fact, it's so bad by the time Malachi writes that Malachi says, represents God saying, it'd be better if you just shut the doors. It would be better if He just stopped than to come and worship me in such a wearisome and worthless way. Not only was God weary of it, though, but the priests were also. They were saying in verse 13, as you noticed, what a weariness this is. They were snorting their nose at it. In other words, they were huffing about it. (sighs) got to do that again. Another sacrifice to make, another offering to give. It's the same word used in the book of Numbers to describe the children of Israel and all their hardships as they wandered through the wilderness. They were weary in their wandering. Now the priests are weary of their worshiping. You see, maintaining the machine of of public worship had become an exhausting burden for the priests to carry, and they were weary of worship. So I wonder, I think the question on the table for us this morning from this text is, how do we avoid this? I don't want to be these guys. You don't want to be these guys. How do we avoid getting weary of worship? And how do we avoid God being sick of our pathetic and worthless worship? How do we avoid being weighed down with the drudgery of maintaining the machinery of worship? Now, obviously, we don't live in Malachi's day. We don't bring animals to church to sacrifice them in worship. Unless you're in Africa, you can carry an animal on your neck during a a wedding service. We do have human priests, not like they had, as mediators serving between us and our God. We don't have that. These sacrificial animals served as signposts on the road of revelation, which point past themselves. You know this, but I remind you again. These animals are are not the end. They're the means to the end. They're pointing forward to something greater and better, to a, a perfect and greater sacrifice. These priests were serving in an office appointed to them by a holy God. And yet their imperfect and hopefully obedient service was a picture of a coming greater priest who would offer the perfect sacrifice which is why it was so important for them to take their job seriously. Because they were representing what God was going to do through His Son. And so if they're going to take in a lame or blind or sick animal, they're minimizing what that points ahead to. The perfection and sinlessness of Jesus, the Messiah. They're also minimizing the holiness of the God they worship, obviously. They're saying of this God that His commands don't really matter. His his holiness is is really a matter of your own interpretation. His command and His pronounced judgment are things that you you can kind of just toy with and they probably won't come upon you. These sacrifices they brought under the law's system, you know, could never take away sin. That's not what their point was. Their point was to cover sin as they looked ahead to a final and full sufficient sacrifice to one who would come as the Lamb of God, who would give his life as a ransom for many, one who would, who would lay down his sinless life as an atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. These priests were daily reminded that their sin was egregious before God and demanded the blood of a substitute to cover them, and they were daily burdened with the weight of of costly sacrifices, pure males in their flock as they offered to God structured worship. We're on the other side of the cross, right? Now we look back and we see that this sacrifice has been fully made. We see our great high priest, Jesus of Nazareth, who in sinless perfection became our sufficient sacrifice. That's what Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he offered once for all into the holy place, excuse me, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thereby securing an eternal redemption. Friend, that is our only hope. That is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only way you can be right with a holy God. Not by any sacrifice you make, not by any blood you shed, not by any obedience you offer to the Lord. None of that will cover your sins. None of that will redeem you from your sin debt. The only hope you have, the only hope I have, the only hope the Mahdi people have in Africa is Jesus the Christ who entered once for all into the perfect holy of holies, the heavenly holy place on the entrance cost of his own blood and thereby made eternal redemption so that we can be forever, freed from our sin, forgiven from our sin, and made right with our God. Because this is true, we now live lives that are, Paul says, living sacrifices. I'm walking you through ABCs of of doctrine, but this is important because you can't, it's so easy to come to an Old Testament text and read yourself into Malachi 1. You ought not do that. You're not there. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. It does. But let's get the, the facts straight first. We don't offer these sacrifices like they did in Old Testament days, but our lives are now living sacrifices based upon the ultimate sacrifice, Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of his mercy and grace and forgiveness, we are compelled to give ourselves as sacrifices unto him. Peter talks about us like living stones being built together into a spiritual house. He says Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and we're living stones being placed together in this structure. And in this building we become a royal priesthood. We offer daily the sacrifices of praise and of good works that have been appointed beforehand for us to do and the sacrifices of obedience to our Lord and the sacrifices of our stuff and our time and our energy and our effort all for His use and the costly and kind things we do for brothers and sisters and strangers in our world. All of these things are opportunities for us to show God our love for Him and our valuing of Him, our sacrifices for Him. We bring them to our Redeemer King not to earn His favor, but to respond to the favor we've already been shown through His Son. But even here, even in that glorious position, worship can become wearisome. You can get tired of coming again to tell God how great He is. You can grow weary of the ruts of worship Patterns. You can pray and not be thoughtful or mindful of the God you pray to. You can sing and not have a heart that is in tune with the words you proclaim. You can even witness to a lost person and hardly believe the gospel you're proclaiming because you're disinterested at the moment yourself. Even here in this glorious position in Christ we can fall into the ruts of wearisome worship. And so what I asked you earlier, I asked you again, how do we avoid this? I think we see in this text three ways to avoid wearisome worship. The first is we must remember who we worship. Second, we must reevaluate how we worship. And lastly, we must rejoice in the day when we will worship perfectly. First often, and, and it's first for a reason, It's primary in in the order of things. We must remember who we worship. It's the core issue in the text. In fact, I would say in, in every moment of worship, this is the core issue. If you lose sight of who you are worshiping, you quickly find the actions and sacrifices of worship to become drudgery and monotony. You just do what you do without thought of who this is for. This is where God starts in his confrontation. You notice number six. He says, a father deserves his honor. That's a duh. A master deserves fear from his servants. So then he says, if I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am your master, where is my fear? So what's the core of what they're missing in their worship? Obedience? No. Honor and fear. Honor and fear would direct them to obedience, but they, what they were missing in their worship that made it wearisome to God and wearisome to them was fear and honor. A word for honor in the original is a word that speaks of the heaviness or the weightiness of a thing. It's often translated as glory in the Old Testament. In an agrarian society, which many of you know, weight matters. Weight makes something more valuable if it's a weightier grain in the same space, it means more. It has more value. We understand that in child-to-parent relationships. The the parents in our lives hold weightiness. They're, They're worthy of honor by their position. And for many of us, praise God, by their examples. Not for all of us, though. But by their position, they're worthy of honor because of who they are in our lives. More than that, this is true, obviously, then, of God. His weightiness, his worthiness demands our honor. Beyond that, the slave to the master, a slave shows his fear of the master through submissive obedience. They know their place in submission to the one who is in charge, the one who has authority. God says to the priest, I am your master. You are my slave. I've anointed you and appointed you to the service. And you're not doing what I told you to do. Therefore, you don't fear me. You don't respect me. You don't value what I have told you to do. So God says to the priest, you've lost those core aspects of worship. These men lost sight of the worthiness of God, the weightiness and the glory of God. They'd lost sight of his authority over them. Therefore, the machinery of worship became burdensome. Doing the stuff became a toil to accomplish. He goes on to say that they despised the name of the Lord because they lost sight of the character of the Lord. That despising is the same word used of Esau in Genesis when he despised his birthright. Remember what happened there? He came in from a long day, being out hunting, and he was starving. Jacob had a, a bowl of lentil stew ready to eat, and Esau was so hungry, he was willing to exchange something that had way more value than a bowl of soup for the temporary relief of his hunger in a bowl of soup. And so he exchanged. He despised his birthright. It was weighty and meaningful and had a lot of value. And he said, "Nah, not to me, not right now. That's what these priests are doing. They're despising the honor, the value, the weightiness of God. And they're saying that can be exchanged in how we worship him, not according to his word. You notice how the Lord reveals himself in verse 6. He calls himself the Lord of hosts. He uses that title again in verses 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 13 and 14 and a bunch of of the rest of the time throughout the rest of the book. It's one of the most common titles used throughout Scripture, but it's especially concentrated in the prophets. In fact, it's used in 1 Samuel and then a little bit in the Psalms and then largely in the prophets. It's a a name that identifies God as Lord over all things, Lord over all of the heavenly and earthly beings He has made. It's a title used of God in context of His conquering power on behalf of his own people. In other words, he's he's Lord over all things good and evil. Therefore, he has the power to give his people the victory according to his will. It's also a title used in connection with the Ark of the Covenant and with the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant sat in the center of the most holy place in the temple it was a place that only the high priest went in once a year the presence the visible presence of god came and rested upon the ark of the covenant in the temple it was the the visible expression of the greatness and glory of god it was the the central place of his public worship in the world and it's this name that god chooses to use the most in connection to that place and that's exactly what's happening here in malachi right It's this place, the Ark of the Covenant, that's being despised. It's the centrality of the visible, expressed presence of God that they are taking little thought of. This title points to God intending to make known His ultimate and supreme authority over all things. His complete worthiness to be worshipped. In other words, He is not just a Lord. He is not just the Lord over a host or two. Or even over the largest army the world has ever seen. He doesn't just have an army bigger than anyone else's army that he can conquer every other army with. He's not just the host, the Lord of the hosts of the earth. He doesn't just have authority over all things in the created world. He's not just the the Lord of hosts over all things in heaven. All the, the powers and mysterious realities of the universe beyond us. Now, He is, as He says in this text, the Lord of hosts over them all. Every molecule in His creation is in complete submission to His authority and rule. There's another title used in this text, it's in verse 14, right in the middle of the verse. He says, I am a great king. There's two other references in Scripture where God is referred to as a great king. Psalm 48, verse 1 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Jesus uses this title in Matthew 5 after the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You notice what's, what connection this text has to our text? Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant. The centrality of the place of worship in the world. God's city on earth is Jerusalem. It's the city of the great King and has a special place in God's economy. It's the center of his work in this world in the Old Testament. It's the center of his work in the world in the early church. It will again be the center of his work in future days when he restores Israel for his glory. It's also the heavenly city, the one described for us in Revelation 21. It's the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven and dwells on earth. And what's the key feature of the new Jerusalem just like it should have been the key feature of the old Jerusalem? God dwells with His people. And His people see Him and know Him and worship Him. See, beloved, it it will someday finally be like it's supposed to be. God will one day occupy the centrality He deserves capturing the hearts and the minds of us for all of eternity, receiving the pure praise, worship, and adoration He should have now. In Malachi 1, though, the city is still in disrepair. The temple is small, not as glorious as the original and certainly not as glorious as the coming one. And worship is anything but fitting for this great king. Why? Because these priests had lost sight of who they were worshiping. Brother, sister, worship is in its essence an expression of value. You are saying in worship, this is how much I value or think this thing or this person is worth. I think it's probably easier to understand that when you think of worshiping than idols. Let's just say you get a new car, I'll stay away from football. That want to have friends at lunch. And say so you get a new car, and, and you love that thing, and you value it highly, and you want to take care of it, and, and your, your estimation of its value will be seen in how you relate to it, what you do to take care of it, how you react when your child slams the door a little harder than you would have liked, or bangs the car door into the Side of the garage because they weren't paying attention when they flung the door open. You'll see in that moment how much you value this entity, this object in your life. Just like if you happen to drive an old meter, you see how much you value that thing by how you take care of it. It is entirely utilitarian to you. You are just keeping it going so you can get from point A to point B. You really don't care if it's dirty. You really don't care if your kids throw gum wrappers on the floor. You really don't care if it hasn't been dusted in a while, as long as it works. You don't care if it gets a dent or three or ten in it, as long as it still runs. You see, your relationship to something and how you treat it displays your value of it. This is obviously, in a much greater way, true of our relationship with God our estimation of Him is the core aspect which dictates how we worship Him. Maybe a better way to say that is to be aware when your worship is weakening, when you're flaming out in your worship of the Lord, when your heart simply isn't in it, when frankly you'd rather watch TV than serve a brother or sister who needs help. What's the answer there? What's the core problem? Do you need to just suck it up and get going? Need some spiritual flagellation? you need to beat yourself up and and get yourself together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get off the couch and go serve that brother or sister in need? Is that the core issue? No, the core issue is you have lost your view of the greatness of God. You in that moment think more of you than you ought and less of Him than you should. You've given too much weight to the wrong things. You've lost sight of the magnificence and glory of God and the joyful privilege of giving your life to him and his service. Frankly, you've become like Esau. You valued a bowl of soup over an inheritance given to you by your father. You've become like the priests who value the temporary gain of keeping the better animals in their flocks while giving up the right, and proper worship of God. It's a foolish exchange. And so if we're going to avoid wearisome worship, we must remember who we worship. We must also reevaluate how we worship. That's what the Lord's calling these priests to in this text. And I, I wrote this in the email, but every time I read this text, I'm surprised by the priest's surprise. You didn't know this? You, you didn't know you were cutting corners? They act like, what's wrong, God? I mean, I think they should like be expecting a prophet to show up any day when they are giving themselves constantly to pathetic worship, offering blind and lame and sick and even stolen animals. Like At, at some point, are you not saying, this probably shouldn't be happening? I probably shouldn't do this. God really probably deserves more, but they had done it for so long And so often, it had become habit for them, and they just didn't see it. They thought everything was fine between them and God. They'd lost God's perspective. They had no idea what they were doing was so egregious in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, fire hadn't fallen from heaven yet and consumed them at the altar, so it must be okay. God must have a little grace for our pathetic offering. Lord says to them, quite ironically, you would never do this for a human governor. If you're bringing a meal to a human governor and you were trying to win his favor because you had some project you wanted him to give money to or to allow to happen, you would never do this. You'd never walk in with a goat that has three legs. You'd never carry a sheep in that its wool is all mangy and spotty and gross and you can tell it's obviously sick. Sa- You'd never do that. You'd never say to him, hey, Here's this sick lamb. Now about that project. God says, then why? Why do you do it for me? You see, how we worship is a clear reflection of who we worship. We're communicating by what we do in worship, what we think of the one that we worship. Our valuing of the object of our worship is seen in how we worship them. And I don't mean necessarily by what you wear to church, or what you drive to church, or how you act in church and the gathering of God's people. What this text is confronting is the disobedience of the priests of God in worship. God had told them specifically, "Here's what you're to do. Here's how you're to offer worship to Me." But they're cutting corners. They lost sight of the glory of God. They had devalued Him and changed His command. So it behoves us from this text to step back and reevaluate our obedience to the Lord. Are we worshiping as he deserves to be worshiped and namely through our obedience? Is it an obedience rooted in the settled work of Christ? Flowing from that settled relationship are we seeking to give ourselves entirely to our Lord as we ought? Are we doing what he commands and what he expects. And where that answer is no, the the answer is not stop and obey. There's an answer before that, and the answer before that is worship God. Gain perspective of the goodness and glory of God and be driven to obedience by that worship. You know this, but worship is not an experience on a Sunday morning. It isn't a, a feeling you get when you jam out in your car to your favorite song It isn't really about you at all. Worship is a declaration of the worthiness of the God which is seen in our humble and joyful and loving obedience to Him in all things. That's what the priests were missing and this is what we must evaluate in our own hearts. And then lastly, we should rejoice in when we will perfectly worship God. You know that though you have these checks in your life to remember and to reevaluate, you're never going to be perfect, right? You and I both know the flawed reality of our own imperfect worship as we feel that weight every Sunday morning. I feel like we should be bringing more to the, the good, great, and glorious God we've gathered to worship. And maybe some Sundays or some normal days, you, you have a great day of worship. You're in tune with the Lord. You you woke up and spent good time in the word and prayer, and everything came easily to you. And, and you desired to obey and you sacrificed and you gave yourself just from sun up to sundown in service to the Lord, and it was a good day. And you know tomorrow's coming, right? Because you're an imperfect sinner who's still in process, and and you're gonna hit a wall at some point, you're gonna wake up predisposed to loving self and hating God. You're going to have to work through that again. And you could easily in that moment grow weary of the struggle. And I want to point you beyond the struggle to its culmination and its consummation. And that's exactly what the text does, by the way. In verses 11 and 14, God answers his own question in verse 6. He says, where's my honor? If I'm a father, where is it? Where's my fear? If I'm a master, where's my fear? In verses 11 and 14, he answers that. Look at it, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, to its setting, so from east to west, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 14. In the middle, for I am a great King, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, the reality is God is so great and so glorious. He will have his worship. Malachi is repeating a theme that Zechariah talked about in Zechariah 14 when I believe in an intermediate kingdom. Revelation 20 talks about it as the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem that the nations of the world will gather, they'll bring their offerings to our Lord Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem. I think that's what, in part, Malachi's pointing to. But obviously, he's pointing even beyond that to a, an even greater day, and we read about this in Revelation 21 and 22. When a new heavens and a new earth are created, and a, a holy, heavenly city descends on earth, and it's the new Jerusalem, and And all of the nations gather in that city to bring worship to the one true God. It's a day when our worship of the Lord will be perfect and flawless and sinless. And so while we struggle today to not fall in the ruts of wearisome worship, let's not lose sight of the coming day. As Peter calls it, the day of eternity when we will worship with no veil on our face and no barrier between us and our Lord. We will see him in his beauty and his glory and we will forever declare his praise. Revelation 22 describes it this way. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As you wrestle this morning with the tension in your own heart of impure, imperfect worship, remember who you worship, reevaluate how you worship, and by all means look past this flawed existence to a glorious coming day and rejoice that one day it's going to be perfect because God will be with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for accepting our impure, imperfect, and very human worship. We pray that you would hasten the day of your son's return so that what we offer you in blinded fashion stumbling through how it is we should most express our awe of you that that would be taken away the veil would be removed and we would see you as you are and be like you as you are so lord our hearts long for that day and until then would you help us to worship you not just when we're together not just in singing together and praying together listening to your word explain together. But Father, would you compel us to worship you with every part of our lives? Would you remind us this week of your greatness and your glory? And would you help us to offer you the worship you deserve? In Jesus' name, amen.